it's not easy. What I found is that I need to have flexibility in my schedule. So any job that would be a classic nine to five with a lunch break could never work. And I don't know how women do that because you need you need to have that flexibility. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm excited today to be joined by Vanessa Klein. Vanessa is a partner at Caliber One, a leading executive search boutique with offices in San Francisco, London, New York, and Singapore. Vanessa is based in LA. She manages the uh, women board member recruiting as well as diversity recruiting, specializing in VP and C-level searches for consumer internet, e-commerce, CPG, and category-defining tech companies. Since 2007, Vanessa has helped some of the world's most successful companies build out their leadership teams. As a partner at Caliber One, Vanessa founded its purpose-driven practice, which focuses on placing executives in growing organizations, seeking to create innovation with meaningful impact. Vanessa, welcome and thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So um, in our previous conversation, we talked about one of uh, the topics that we should definitely discuss today being the inequality of women representation in C-suite positions. And um, you wrote a really good article actually on LinkedIn, which I will include in the show notes, Vanessa. And the title was, so you want to hire a female executive, here's why you won't get one, which is kind of a <laughs> uh, provocative title. But so maybe we could start there. Like, Why do companies struggle to hire female executives. Well, let's start with that. Why is this so challenging? Well, I, it's a long answer, but let's start with that. We all know that it's a smaller pool of candidates. So mm -hmm. women for various reasons that has been written about to exhaustion is why there are so few women at the top. And so then when a company wants to recruit a C-level, let's say a, a chief financial officer who's a woman, they will often say, well, they, they want somebody who's qualified that's currently doing the job. And so then they're pulling from an even smaller pool of candidates. So we're talking about women who have already made it to, to the top and are currently CFOs. And so that's a, that's a small, a relatively small group of women. And so then you have to answer certain questions. Women historically um, were most, most women, I hate using generalizations, but I think this is fairly true, that once they've established themselves and they've gained the credibility in one organization, why would they risk transitioning to a role that's a lateral move for them with an organization they have to reestablish credibility in, which has been difficult for women to do anyway. So that's, that's one. So you've got to solve for that. So are you offering um, not only more, more money, you know, is it financially beneficial for them to make a move? The schedule that they've established, if they've had children and they've had, they've established their credibility. So they have a flexible schedule. Everyone knows they're getting their work done, but they may have homeschooling to deal with or whatever else. They have to recreate that scenario at this new company with new people. So there are these two big obstacles already. Mm -hmm. And then going through the recruiting process, 
I think women in general like to meet more people, in my experience, than a male candidate would. And I think there's a variety of reasons. And one leads back to, can I establish credibility? Am I joining a company that is that wants a woman because they have an all-male leadership team and they their board said, you need to hire a woman and this is your open position. And so that's why they want you to join. So women will want to take a longer time through the process and they expect salary transparency. So the kind of old, the shenanigans around, you know, comp will be competitive and we'll talk more about that later on. That typically doesn't work. I find that women want to know, listen, I'm already established. I'm in this role. I'm making this much money. Are you offering me more than that? And is this team better than my current team? And will I have the flexibility that I have here? And so I think those are some of the reasons why, why it's challenging. Mm, that makes total sense. I, um, I read a statistic that, so this is a UK statistic, but I'm guessing it's not too dissimilar from what you've got in LA. So uh, the FTSE 100, which is an index of companies on the London Stock Exchange, you know, top 100 publicly traded companies. Um, now this is from 2020, only 5% of CEOs were women. And if you look at the top 250, it's even less, it's 2%. So I don't know what that means. Maybe the top 100 have made more effort or I'm not sure what the reason behind that gap there is, but anyway, so it is a really small, smaller talent pool. And as you say, well, if they're already established and they've made it quote unquote, then why, you know, it's going to be difficult to move them to, to your client company. So what is, what's the solution then? And I know this is not an easy, right? Answer, but what would be some of the steps? And that's the important question is what's the strategy? What's the long game? And I think that's Mm -hmm. the, the piece that companies are missing is it's very reactionary, to, to pressure from a board, to social, you know, to media pressure. We've got to have a woman. We need to think, we need to think much bigger than that. How do we create pathways for women to move through organizations? The best way to recruit a woman onto your C-suite or into your VP level is by recruiting them early and often into entry-level roles and defining career paths for them. And providing mentorship opportunities, moving them through the organization in a thoughtful, structured way, putting them on, you have to have a strong HR function that's thinking this through with you. And you're defining here, we're going to recruit, our effort is to recruit a percentage of women into these entry-level roles We're going to identify our top performers and we're going to move them through the organization so that we can promote within. That's the way to give most more women an opportunity rather than just um, trading women that are already established from one company to the next. Let's let's make room for more women in the organization and therefore into the upper ranks of management. Makes sense. Of course, that's a long term strategy, mm-hmm. right? And um, so many companies are focused on the short term. So what, you know, if a, a company comes to you and says, we need more female executives, we need more balance uh, at the board level, then what other 
advice or options would you be giving them? So a few things. One is, um, yes, of course, as, as a recruiting firm, we have a, a network of women executives that are currently sitting in those roles. And of course we can, we can present this opportunity to them as well. In addition, what I always offer is this idea of let's think more expansively about it. So if we're hiring someone at the C-level, let's look at the VPs. Let's look at the more junior executives that are ready to take the next step and they might need some support. So often, so for instance, um, uh, a year ago, we recruited a VP of engineering into a fintech company and they wanted a woman. So the woman that, that we found that was the most qualified, what she lacked was an executive presence. You couldn't imagine her standing up at an all hands and kind of delivering an inspirational speech around what they're going to do, you know, for the next six months. And so what my suggestion was is let's hire an executive coach. Let's bring her on board and set up a plan of how we're going to develop that within her. And they were really amenable to that. And that's what we ended up doing. And there are ways to think about, you know, where, so, okay, maybe we have, if we're using the CFO example, again, maybe we know immediately we need to hire a controller. Maybe we know we need to hire somebody around them that's going to be strong in an area that they are, they are less experienced in, you know, or whatever it might be. Instead of going, we need somebody that checks off these six boxes if we want to open up the candidate pool to include more women, then let's do that and let's be willing to to uh, supplement their their experience if they don't have all of those boxes checked. Great. I like the problem solving there. Good, good ideas. Um, and is there anything else that companies need to like? What are the kind of other mistakes or constraints that companies are encountering as they seek, assuming that they're, it's a sincere, mm-hmm. um, you know, not a token. I, exactly. Exactly. That's the thing is how do you identify, like when you're working with a client, are they really serious or are they just paying lip service to the idea, which is trendy and, you know, might, um, play well with, you know, stakeholders? Yeah, I think it's fairly obvious most of the time. And and, and there's a sense of who can we hire that's not going to disrupt the culture at the at the executive team level? Like what's who's the what's the bare minimum of like diversity that we can add without changing anything. And when mm-hmm. you get that cue, that's usually usually the cue that this is a token hire. And it's right. it's through the conversations you have with the potential client and how they talk about it. It's um it's tricky when you have where it gets tricky is when you have a team that let's say it's it's all men. They've worked together before, maybe they founded a company before, this is the new company and they know they want to hire a woman to join the executive team, but it's going to be the first woman. And so then you have to say, is this a token hire or is this because they really know? And this is just the first, there isn't another woman on the team because this is their first, their first time having to hire outside of their, their own 
you know, the, the own established founding group. And so yeah. often I find that that's 50, 50, you know, I've worked with founding mm-hmm. groups who are saying like, you know, it's, we just happen to be four men and now we're, we're going to recruit our first woman to join the team. Other times it's that founding group whose board has said, you need to bring on a woman and they're kind of forced into it and how you, Mm -hmm. how you know the difference. And on the Mm -hmm. other side of that, when it's it's harder to recruit the first woman onto an executive team, because most women these days are concerned about being a token hire. And so they want to know why they're the first woman, you know, is there another woman on the executive team who's well-respected and well-established? If not, why? And you have to Mm -hmm. answer that question really fully in order to get them to truly engage in a interview process. Hmm. Interesting. And how often would it be the case, Vanessa, when, you know, you make uh, a determined effort to find a, a, a female or at least to have more female representation in the short list? But um, so you've kind of done your job, but then ultimately the person who is appointed is a man. Does that like happen more often than not? Or is it like, what's the sort of success rate of for companies who are sincerely trying to, to accomplish this? I think it's about 30%. So there, there are, uh, there are definitely cases where we've presented a diverse slate of candidates and, Mm -hmm. and predominantly women and, uh, them the um, a man may be hired but that is not necessarily because the women on the shortlist uh didn't make the cut it may have also been that they decided not to move forward mm, that they right. weren't interested or that <laughs> the compensation package what, what what i have noticed is women right now seem to be more highly compensated i think that I've talked to quite a few women that have recently received raises. Hmm. Um, so I think companies want to keep the women that they have, and that mm-hmm. makes it even more competitive. So there certainly have been times where there have been very qualified women considered, and ultimately they couldn't get them. And so they, the man huh. that was on the, on the shortlist took the job. So, okay, that's interesting. So what is driving that? Is it the same dynamic that is causing companies to seek more gender balance in their board is also causing companies to want to retain the female talent they already have? And Right. Absolutely. Well, knowing how difficult it is to recruit women, if you've got a a Mm. woman on your C-suite who's great, the, yeah. the amount of work and time and effort it would take to replace her with another woman is daunting. Right. You know, you're much, yes. you need to do everything you can to retain that person who's a top performer and a great asset to the company um, yes. if you've already got her. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so what are there differences? You've alluded to a couple of things, uh, but I wonder if you could expand on what, um, how companies need to tailor the opportunity based on who they're looking to attract and make it more attractive for uh, female executives. I think there's so many touch points through an interview process where you have an opportunity mm-hmm. to do that. And from from the initial, from the assignment brief, you know, or the the job description where you're highlighting 
your the company and your values and who you are and the growth opportunity and all the things that are going to be attractive to any candidate, regardless of whether they are um, they identify as a man or a woman. But then working in the pieces around what does it look like to work here? What are our, you know, how flexible are things? Um, What are focusing? I find that there's much more women want to know what they're going to, how success is going to be measured for them. So rather than if you look at a a job description that will often say, here's your responsibilities, simply reframing that or adding in, here's what success will be. Here's what your success is measured on. These are your KPIs. This is what it looks like. That's a a, a really small yet powerful way because that's what what women are focused on. They They want to know exactly what they're walking into. So how is success measured on? What's the culture of the organization I'm growing? Go joining? What's the growth opportunity at that organization? And then importantly, talking about uh, initially, make it very clear who the rest of the leadership team is. So when you, if we're talking about handing an assignment brief to a potential candidate, they're going to read through that. You include the bios of all the people in the leadership team, let her look them up. And then in the interview process, she should meet each one of those people. Rather than, um, you know, if it's just the CEO or a couple of other people, she needs to know who her peers are and whether she's going to get along with them or not and and how easy it will be to gain credibility. And spending the time to thoughtfully create that that interview strategy is is important. And instead of it being the classic interview, if you're peppered with questions, it needs to be emphasized that this is going to be a 50-50 split. We want her to come in and get to know each person and get an understanding if she feels comfortable with them and if she can work with them. And then that person has the opportunity to interview her. We're not the the scenario of let's bring let's bring her in and have her interview with these five people. And all she does is answer a bunch of questions is not is not going to work. Mm. She'll walk away not knowing is this a is this a group I can work with. And then the other piece, which I think is a really good idea to insert in the interview process, is an executive simulation uh, meeting, which I have a client that does right now where with the final candidates, they have that candidate come in with the executive team and they literally do a this is like Monday morning exec meeting. We're going to talk about what's going on in the in the business and we want to hear your thoughts and you participate. And that's a real easy way Mm. to get a sense of. Can, can I get a word in edgewise? Are these, you know, is, are people listening to each other? What's the dynamic? Things like that should be incorporated into that process because I think it's harder to close women and you need to be much more thoughtful about what they're trying to get out of the process, which is that understanding of, will I be successful here? And I think men in general are much more, you know, what's, I, I'm going to misquote it now, but there's some saying about how, um, you know, a man may look at a job and not be qualified, you know, for most of it and have one thing that, that matches the qualification <laughs> they'll apply. Right. And they're like, I can do this where a woman will look, a woman will look at it and go, I haven't done this one thing. So I'm not qualified. It's like they're the way that they think about evaluating an opportunity, I think is really thoughtful and you have to be very engaged. So I think that's, once you've identified potential women candidates, then it's about how do we create this whole process? 
Great, great suggestions. Thank you. Um, doing that uh, board interaction or simulated meeting. I mean, you could even be a real meeting for that matter, but it, that's a fantastic idea um, to get a real, much more of a real true sense. Um, by the way, I want to introduce you to someone else who's been on my podcast um, called Helen McGuire. She's a founder of a technology company called Diversely.io. I'll connect you, you guys up. But so her platform, one of the things that they do is, for example, um, it will automatically um, change like your, your ads or job descriptions or, or um, you know, to make sure that you do attract a more diverse talent pool, but because the language mm -hmm. that you even use when you're describing things can put certain people off or make them not feel like this is, this is something they, they should apply for. So. Brilliant. Um, yeah. So, okay. Fantastic. I would love to kind of bring this back to, um, a more personal example, Vanessa, because by the way, this topic is one that so many of my clients and listeners will will relate to. Um, could you talk about your own experience of you know becoming a mother and balancing that with work? Because you know, especially during the pandemic, that has been so so difficult. But maybe you could tell your story there. Yeah, I. It's such a. Um I'm I'm glad that that you bring it up because I think it's such an interesting everybody has a different experience and I I know that when I became a mom it had felt like um it wasn't talked about like we just didn't I don't know whether because I didn't have children I just wasn't tuned in to the conversation or that the conversations just weren't happening um but it was such a a a jolting experience to all of a sudden go from work being this priority and the ability to work all hours. You know, something needs to get done. You just work through dinner, work into the night. And then I think the, the, one of the first, um, kind of big wake up calls was that I wouldn't be able, I couldn't do that. You know, I had these finite start and stop times. And then after the baby was asleep, you know, I heard other mothers say, well, after the baby's asleep, then I go back to work. Well, I was so exhausted. Like, oh, I couldn't yeah. even, like, if the baby was asleep, my first, my first son, um, he didn't sleep very well. And so when he did sleep, there was no way I was working. I needed to get some kind of <laughs> sleep. Um, and so the, the, the early, like the first year was just, I just couldn't figure out how I could have, how I could stay awake enough to, to really focus on work with so little sleep. You know, I always heard people talk about that kind of jokingly. And then I was like, this is survival mode. Like I'm just trying to survive, let alone yes. think strategically about a recruiting process or anything else. But once I, I got past that, that part, I think now I have two children. I have a 17 month old and a five-year-old and okay. the journey has, has, been a roller coaster, you know, kind of things, things change and shift. And initially, um, I wanted, my husband decided, we decided he could, he would stay home and okay. I would focus on my practice, my recruiting practice. Mm -hmm. And so we did that for two years. And mm -hmm. then 
like right as go, actually during COVID, he's probably one of the only people I know that um, had gone from being a stay-at-home dad to being employed all of a sudden, even during during COVID. But we decided that would that would be the right the right thing for him to do. And so now I've got a nanny, and my son's in preschool, and now it's all about how do I spend as much time with my children as they're in these developmental years as I can and be an effective partner. And that's, I think that's what everyone kind of struggles with. I think I know a lot of men who are partners that have children and they rely on their wives to take care of the kids and they seem to be at work at all hours. Whereas the women I know that are partners are balancing both mm-hmm. in a, in a more real way. And It's not easy. What I found is that I need to have flexibility in my schedule, which because I'll need to go to to meet a teacher or I'll need to go to a school event or I'll need to go to a dentist's appointment. I need to be able to work those things in. So any job that would be a classic nine to five with a lunch break could never work. And I don't know how women do that because you need you need to have that flexibility. And I would love. I'd love to have a bigger network of women executives who are mothers. I know that there's some, um, I think there's, there's some new networking groups that are kind of like chief, but geared towards women who are executives who are moms too. And those are probably things I need to, to investigate. I'm glad to see that those things are happening. Um, but I, I certainly don't have all the answers. I'm, I'm figuring it out. This is this is really great that you're opening up on this because I don't know if it's really talked about enough. Before I go to my next question, I'd like to share one of the keys to my success in recruitment and in business. You may have noticed that a lot of the people I interview on this show have a coach. That's not a coincidence. Most high achievers have a coach, including me. I've worked with various coaches over the last 20 years, and it's been a huge factor in my own personal and business growth. Here's why. Sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees, and it really helps to take a step back and look at how you can improve the business and get a fresh outside perspective from someone who's bringing new ideas and insights to the table. Plus, as a business owner, who is holding you accountable and helping you stay on track? So I want to encourage you, if you're not already working with a coach, get one. It doesn't have to be me. There are plenty of amazing coaches out there. Just find someone who you believe will add measurable value to your business and can help you get to the next level. If you do want to explore a coaching relationship with me, then you're welcome to apply for a free 30-minute strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. This is not a sales call. My number one objective is to help you to get clear on your goals, identify the roadblocks that are holding you back, and create a strategic plan to increase your billings and grow your business. I promise you'll leave our session feeling focused, re-energized, and excited to take your business to the next level. You can apply at www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. So your kids are 17 months and five years. So five years ago... Um, what was the realized point where you realized, holy cow, this is, this is going to be really challenging. Like when did it sort of all, um, you know, when did that realization occur? Well, I think the realization occurred right when he was born. And I remember looking at him and thinking, I'm supposed to go back to work in three months (laughs) and going, I can't leave this babe. This, this is, that's inhuman 
How could you be expected to not hold and snuggle and be with your infant? Three months yeah. is just too too young. You can't, I can't, I couldn't imagine doing that. And, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to be in a position where I could afford to say, you know, I'm just not going to work for a few more months. So I took five months yeah. off um, right. to, to be with him. And then I negotiated, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to work for on Fridays. Right. It meant that I worked longer during the week uh, in mm-hmm. retrospect, you know, and that was going into the office. So I was mm-hmm. missing a whole, you know, all, all this time of just seeing him. Whereas now during COVID, one of the blessings has been my 17 month old has spent most of her life in quarantine. She's downstairs right now. I can pop out, you know, and give her a hug or feed her a biscuit or do, you know, whatever at the time nursing. And so that that's been a game changer. And now I'm all in favor of women being able to work from home as long as they have support, like, I, you know, I couldn't do that if I didn't have a nanny with her while I'm on calls, you know, and, and meetings, but that was game changing. And I didn't have that with my son. I was actually commuting every day, but it was when wow. he was initially born where I thought, I can't believe the expectation is that mm-hmm. I'm going to be coming back to work full time in three months while he's so tiny. And that yeah. was like, wow, I have to, like, this isn't right. Like this is, there's something wrong with that. It's, it doesn't feel natural. doesn't feel right. And that kind of launched me into a whole um, kind of tirade for a while about our maternity policies in the United States and how mm-hmm. ridiculous they are. And that they're basically based on as soon as a woman's body, which people don't like to talk about, recovers from the trauma of giving birth, then in four weeks, she should be uh, fit enough to go back to work and doesn't at all consider bonding with the child or nursing or any of these other things that matter. It's just purely she should be physically capable of returning to work in, in four weeks. And so therefore, that's what she should do. And so I was um, I spent I think I spent a lot of my maternity leave telling anybody who would listen about how ridiculous these policies were and how things needed to change. I, yeah, absolutely. I can understand why. I do think it's better in Europe um, in terms of what uh, employers are required to provide for for maternity and even paternity leave as well now. Mm -hmm. So, but, um, so when did it, you and your husband decide that he would be the one to stay at home. Cause that's, I think not, un- it's still not that common. It's more and more common, of course, but like, what was that conversation? <laughs> you know, <laughs> he too bad. He's not here to tell you. It took me a long time to convince him. And what I had done is I was talking to as many other women partners as I could find that had children because when I had Jackson, my son, I didn't know anybody. And I kept asking people, I was like, who can you clients, who else have you worked with? That is a woman that has kids. I'd love to to meet her. And I started networking with these other women. And what I noticed is they all had stay at home husbands because our jobs are they're round the clock. They're it's a, it's up and down. It's feast or famine. Oftentimes, you know, you'll be, 
packed full of projects and then there's nothing. And then there's, you know, it's, it's a always moving and it's hard thing to try and constrain that within a classic work day. And so the, mm. what I saw was, was women who had husbands that stayed home so that they weren't able to be more flexible with work and they could stay late or go on the, you know, the trips to meet clients or candidates that they needed to. And so I pitched that to him and I said, you know, listen, mm. my, my career, I'm right. I'm, I'm on the upswing, you know, I've got, I'm on this great trajectory. I don't, I don't want to lose that. And I need more flexibility. I can't, I can't be overly concerned that I've got to be home right at five so that the, Mm -hmm. the nanny could be relieved. If you can be there, it would be helpful. And it took, it took a few months and probably six months. And then, and then he said, okay, he would do that. Now, the caveat is in my mind, I think I thought he would be the great dad who stayed at home and he'd be like my assistant who I could just say, <laughs> here's what we need to do. And he would work it out and go do it. And as it turns out, that's not what happened. And, you know, he had his own vision of what it meant. And I thought it meant that I wouldn't have to think about any of the stuff like buying diapers and the groceries that he would do all that. As it turns out, we had a differing set of ideas of what it looked like. Hilarious. Uh, well, it's, it, you, you made it work. So, so that's, yeah. um, that's amazing. That's fantastic. And it was a great gift for him, by the way, you know, and he would say, mm-hmm. he's like, who, how many men get this opportunity to be with their kids when they're so little? you know, and spend this, this quality time. And I, I think it's, I think it was a beautiful thing for him. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, what I have always worked from home and that's one thing, which even though my wife, Lisa is the primary, you know, carer for our, for our kids. Um, I really cherish and value that the fact mm-hmm. that I was there and present, like, for their whole from the from when they were born and and because I worked for myself I did have that I mean that more flexibility if you like mm-hmm. so what um you mentioned that you have put sort of boundaries and flexibility built that into your schedule so what does that look like now on a practical basis well, so, so for instance, um, my 17 month old who's been raised in quarantine, things have just started opening up. And so she can go to gymnastics once a week. And so on Tuesday mornings, my calendar is blocked off. I take my son to preschool. I go to gymnastics with her and then I start my day at 10. And, um, and that's a solid, I'm not going to tell I don't care how important it is that it's not happening. And I have to make that clear. So I'm accountable, not only to myself, but I tell the associates on my team, I tell mm-hmm. my admin, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm accountable to everyone that this is unmovable. And it makes me feel better because I, I get to be the good parent who's showing up and I'm fully present and it's consistent. And so I found that the the key is you have to pick the things that are going to matter the most to both of mm-hmm. you, you and your child, and then those have become set in stone. Um, mm. And then uh, my day has to end at 5 p.m., which is pretty early, mm-hmm. but that's when I, I take the kids, I cook dinner, 
we sit down that my husband returns home. And then if I, if there's more, which sometimes is the case after we put the kids to bed, then I'm back. Then I am back at work. And now I have gotten a little bit more sleep so I can, I can do that. But I've found the most helpful thing so far is deciding what's going to be important and setting that in stone that I'm not going to miss that, that this is, this is kid time. Um, I, that makes total sense. I read something about Sheryl Sandberg saying that she, her non-negotiable was she had to be home to have dinner with her family at whatever time that, that Mm -hmm. is every day. That was like her non-negotiable thing that it was in her schedule. Um, and you mentioned about like the, you tried working four days and had, did that work out? Because my COO, Leanne, that's what she does. She works, well, she works from home anyway, uh, whether we're, we're in a uh, lockdown or not. Um, but she works a 40 hour week in four days. I don't know how she does that. It's, it, she is a, uh, a dynamo, but you know, how, how did, what was your experience of, of that? You know, I, it's, I think everybody is different by the way. And so when I did, I did that with Jackson and it was really nice to have an entire day with him to do whatever we wanted. But yeah. the rest of the time it was like, I missed most of the week because I was working longer. I, you know, I, there were days where I didn't even see him, you know, by the time I came home, he was already in bed. And I think I would rather have the nightly dinners like we do, we all sit down and have dinner together every night. I think that to me, the consistency of that means more to me than having that one day during the week that were, that that's yeah. just him and I, I'd rather have more every day. Yeah, no, I get that. It probably depends on the ages of your kids and everything else, and whether yeah. you're working from home or outside the home and that sort of thing as well. Um, so then coming full circle back to the discussion about, um, about hiring and companies who want more diversity. Um, we talked about attraction, but in terms of being actually willing and able to step up and provide this sort of flexibility that women are going to require in order to attract them, you know, what do you see the best companies doing that is going to give them a competitive edge in terms of attracting, retaining the top talent? Well, there's, there's a lot. So for, for instance, I've got one client who um, they have, extensive benefits for women that I hadn't been, I hadn't seen in most other companies, such as a child, childcare reimbursement up to a certain amount. Um, they had pre pre COVID a daycare on site, um, a la Google, you know, who's, who's had that, although it's hard to get your kid into there, but these idea of supporting women, enabling them to do their work without sacrificing their relationship with their children. That's essentially what it comes down to is, can we, can we help reimburse for, for childcare? So, um, and, and can we offer them childcare on site? So they're not so far away from their kid, because many times, at least for me, 
I just wanted to know he was in proximity, (laughs) you know, that even if I didn't see him, just knowing he's, you know, a few rooms over or on another floor is comforting um, and take some of the mental load off that I think women carry around of worrying constantly about what's happening with their children. So relieving that is a huge thing. That is much more rare, those kinds of models. What I do see in in clients who I think are doing a really good job is the attitude, the new school thought of as long as you get your work done, we don't care when you do it. So if you need to be gone for two hours in the middle of the day for uh, something to do with your child, that's fine. We're going to measure you on that goes back to to tie it back in. When you put together a job description, you're thinking about a woman and you put in here's how success will be measured as long as that they hit all those things and they're going to be measured as being successful against these things. And it shouldn't matter. And that's what they're going to be thinking about. Can I accomplish all this on the schedule that I need to have? I feel like. One of the almost um, hidden benefits of the pandemic, if we're going to look for a silver lining, is that this idea now seems kind of normal, right? Whereas before, so many companies that were more traditional were very resistant to embracing that concept of, you know, being measured based on the outcome rather than being present at your desk for however many hours. So, um, so maybe that we'll see more and more of that, even, even when things open up. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And what about the humanization of it where now you see all these, um, you know, you can go online and see clips of like Zoom's you know, where where kids are jumping around the background (laughs) in a filmed interview or whatever it might be. And I think it's brought this like, you're human, I'm human. This isn't just our job anymore. This is integrated into all of our lives. And yes, you have children. And instead of it being like this thing that happens after work, my son was jumping butt naked in the background during a client meeting (laughs) at one point. And I was mortified and they were hysterical. And it was like, we had this bonding moment, you know, of like where I think oftentimes women are, are not directly, but indirectly it's suggested to like your kids are happen outside of work. Like where, you know, this is, that isn't what's happening now. Like your kids are this thing that happens some other time. And during COVID it's like, nope, they're right here. You can hear me screaming and yelling and jumping in the background and being confronted with the humanness of it all. Yeah, I actually like that. I think it is it is more real, right? And you, those um, walls or or kind of that that separation between personal and professional is more blurred now. And you, I think it's uh, I think there's a nice aspect to that. I do too. Um, yeah. So, Vanessa, you mentioned Google, and I know that before joining Caliber One, you were. A consulting at Google and you helped to build out their internal executive search function. What was it like working there? <laughs> well, I have to say I was very young um, at the time. And so it was my, I remember, I remember coming onto campus and thinking, oh my gosh, I've made it. It's Google. I'm so excited. I can't wait to tell everybody that I work at Google. 
And I was, um, I was, I was just so enthusiastic. And so my experience was, um, and, and I should say that at the recruiting function within different business functions is run differently. So in general administration, which is, is where I would fall in, I can't speak to how engineering recruiting is run, Mm -hmm. for instance, but at the time there was so many meetings. I remember thinking, how are you supposed to do anything? Cause there's just so many meetings all the time. And this, and the emphasis on metrics, recruiting metrics, which I think is, is good practice. I also had the experience of going, you know, we're all more than just numbers. There's more factors. So for instance, if you're being measured on how many placements you've made, but you've got a hiring manager who's unrealistic or notoriously challenged, you know, doesn't factor that in. So I remember thinking, wow, how do you accurately, accurately measure the success of your recruiting function? And they have a very, just a very black and white approach. You know, it's how many people did you hire? And there, there's a story, a case to be made for that. You know, sure, at the end of the day, if, if, if for that example, if it's a difficult hiring manager, if you're able to overcome that, then you, you must be an excellent recruiter. So I, I learned a lot about how recruiting functions are, are measured. Um, mm. And my experience was I, I had some real big lessons that, that I learned about just myself. I had never been in a large organization, highly matrixed one. I didn't know anything about politics. And I didn't have some basic manners. And I mean, manners like um, I remember being uh, in a meeting and I had done everything possible. You know, I had I had on this project had built the target list and had gone into all kinds of different resources to gather potential profiles. I really covered all, all the bases and had done a really good job doing so. And somebody new had joined the meeting and said something like, why don't you do this? Which is something I'd already done. And I think my response was, yeah, I already did it. Thanks. <laughs> Which was very rude and not how you should talk <laughs> well, to somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, there were those thing, things like that. Um, and my experience all in all was that um, it, it was uh, very paper pushing, you know, very much just looking at, at resumes and making a call and it felt um, it wasn't something I would, I would want to do long-term. Interesting. I, do you know what? I never learned those manners. I think Vanessa and the, the politics is, I, that's why I work for myself because even in a small firm of 200 people, I, I, um, yeah, it, it, it wasn't for me. So I can't imagine ever working at Google or something, but what a fantastic experience to get to see that side of it. Has yeah. that influenced like your under, understanding the sort of talent acquisition function uh, within a, a company like that? Um, has that helped you as, a, as a, an agency recruiter? Well, I think that, you know, some, some of the good, the the good things I learned there was they have a, a really great technology system, a process of how you can do research and how you store information and the importance of having that data um, 
so that you're not reinventing the wheel all the time and the importance of leveraging tools and staying up to date with what's available so that you're constantly more efficient um, mm -hmm. and the, the importance of knowledge management that, you know, you're, you're creating things, whether it's pitches for potential clients or research on a search and the way in which you store and manage that data is, is really a point of leverage for you as a recruiter and as a retained search firm. It, the whole name of the game is, can you get to the right people? Can you get to them more quickly than anybody else? <laughs> And can you move them through this process in an efficient way? And so um, leveraging all the tools that, that, that are out there and really thinking through every year, how can we do this better to make us quicker and more accurate um, is a huge differentiator. And I think um, mm. being in-house, you know, Google was uh, the first, my first in-house experience. And then I was at a company called Market Tools, which at the time was a 500 person international market research and technology companies. They had a, a few different businesses, services, technology, a freemium online survey tool and working across functionally there and getting to know hiring managers. I uh, got a really good understanding of what it means to work with where that each hiring manager is different and that you have to build your relationship and understand where their strengths and weaknesses are and help them think through what they really need and how to organize their interview process rather than thinking everybody knows what, what they're doing and let's just send candidates and assume all goes well. I learned that that's mm -hmm. not the case, that in fact, you need to be much more consultative and much more of a partner and really help create that strategy so that you're accountable to the outcome. So that means you need to be involved in thinking through that entire process so that you can manage that outcome in the best possible way. Absolutely. That's an important, uh, important thing for all recruiters to, to be able to figure out how to, how to navigate that. Mm -hmm. Um, you mentioned tools, and this is something people always, they love this topic and are always asking me for the latest, greatest. What are, like in terms of your tech stack, what are the tools that are kind of like the essentials that you really rely on heavily? And then what are some of the sort of nice to haves? Oh, well, so in, um, I, I, so in all honesty, as the last couple of years or so, I haven't been geeking out as much on tools as I once did just because of the limitations <laughs> on, on time. But I used to have a list, a running list of all these different tools I want to investigate. I can say that um, uh, there are some free tools that I like, I like to use. For instance, there's, um, it's called the Way, Way Back Machine. You can oh, put yeah. that, you can put it in Google and I will look yeah. at startups when they mm -hmm. still have their executive teams listed on their website. Cause at a certain point they then take everybody down because they don't want people poaching their teams. So if I want to know, you know, I want a CMO from a series A company that grew to series B and at this inflection point, identify that company. I'll go to the way, way back machine and, and pick out who was on their leadership team at that moment. Things like that I find to be super helpful. There's cool. a, a new tool that I'm not actually going to implement yet, but that I'm, I was really, really excited about called Danae, 
D-N-N-A-E. And they are mm-hmm. a tool that lay that searches in LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. It allows you to sort candidates, filter candidates in different ways than you can on LinkedIn. And it uses mm-hmm. um, language processing to take your your resume, not your resume, your assignment brief, your job description, and then deliver you profiles that are pretty on, Mm. on target. But then in addition to that, you can manage, you can send outreach through this tool Mm. and send automated. If you haven't heard back, it will know that. And you Mm -hmm. can schedule a follow-up. So things that kind of improve the process. And then we use um, some add-on tools in addition to our database, such as Airtable, which is a great way to to see things quickly um, about searches and and candidates, Um, and Canva to create Mm -hmm. pretty documents and and assignment briefs, which I'm really impressed with. But then as soon as, as in regards to tools that help the recruiting process itself, I, I love access to as much information as I can get. So I love things like um, Crunchbase and PitchBook and, you know, all the, the big consolidators of company information, people information. Um, but there's been for contact information right now. I like Lusha or Lucia. Mm-hmm. It's called, you know, there's a bunch of different ones. I kind of, bounce back and forth to, to different ones. There's other ATS systems that have really powerful research tools that I'm going to be diving into later in the year. I think, I don't know if you've heard of Luxo. Yeah. So a couple of my clients use, use that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was new for me. So I've been checking that out and I'm pretty impressed. Um, but yeah, I don't, I have to, I have to go through my list. You know what I do find is these tools come in and out. You know, I have a, a list from last year and half of it, those companies aren't there anymore. So it's fine. Funny. You know, there were, there were very cool. Uh, there was a company called Recruiting Biscuit or Sourcing Biscuit okay. that <laughs> right. was like a web page, and you could plug in keywords and it would search LinkedIn for you. It would x-ray search LinkedIn for you. And it was really effective. And I think they got... They got wiped out, you know, they're all, so, so they change. You got to be on it, but I always love to hear about exactly. Yeah, exactly. You have to kind of, it's an ongoing, you know, uh, thing where it evolves and you try different things. So, uh, but the way, way back machine is I, I have used that, but I didn't think of it using it in the way that you're suggesting. So how do you use it? Oh, well, it's usually if I'm trying to, look up um actually no i've used it to find contact information for people Mm -hmm. because as you say like when uh at certain stages in the evolution of a company they want to be contacted right and so all the phone numbers and everything will be on there the mobile numbers and then as they grow and they become more successful they become less accessible and then they don't publish their cell phone numbers or whatever. So I've used it to look and see if I can get a telephone number to contact people. But, um, but I had not, yeah, it's a, it's a clever tip. 
Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> um, Vanessa, it's been a really good conversation. Thank you so much for, for joining me. And uh, look, where if people want to follow up with you and have a, have a conversation on any of the themes we've talked about, what's the best way for them to reach you? You know, I think the easiest thing is to go to my website and you can email me to mm-hmm. to Caliber One through the, through there. And my name is spelled differently. So that's the key point. It's that it's V-E-N-E-S-A-K-L-E-I-N dot com. And then you can you can email me through there. Fantastic. Vanessa, it's been a pleasure and uh, I look forward to seeing so you again. Nice. Thank you so much, Mark. It was it was lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.